Welcome to the Blood Cancer Experience, a podcast by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. This podcast connects people affected by a blood cancer to resources that inform, support, educate, and empower. When it comes to cancer, it's hard to navigate the unknown, and there are no easy answers. We're here to bring you the information you need to help make sense of every step of the blood cancer experience. My name is Montana Skirka, and I will be your host for today's episode. As a survivor of childhood leukemia, I am passionate about guiding others on their health journey as an integrative wellness educator. I work with individuals of all ages teaching yoga and meditation, health coaching, leading wellness workshops, and podcasting, writing, and speaking out about the importance of a holistic approach to physical and mental health challenges. Today on the show, I am talking to Cole Myers. Cole is a second year engineering student from Halifax, Nova Scotia. He was treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 16 and treated for a relapse at 17, which included chemotherapy, radiation, and a stem cell transplant. Cole is passionate about biking, engineering, and fundraising for the LLSC to support others with blood cancer. Hello, Cole. Welcome. Hi, Montana. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, Cole, I'm really interested to begin our conversation on what your life was like prior to your cancer diagnosis. What were you kind of like as a teenager and what were you into at that time? Well, prior to cancer diagnosis, which was in the summer of grade 10, I was very into sports. I was a competitive skier in the winter and I was actually on the campaigns development team for triathlon at the time. So I was competing nationally for triathlon, uh, wow. swimming provincially, uh, just summer swimming and yeah, high school, pretty much it pretty much covers it. Just a regular high school student. Although it sounds like you're quite an athlete. So obviously sports uh, was a really important part of your life at that time. Yeah, sports, school, and my family were probably the three biggest pillars in my life at the time. And then after treatment, that probably brought in a fourth really important thing, which is fundraising. So that mm. definitely changed things. Very interesting. Well, we'll definitely, definitely get into that a bit, little bit later. So can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis? Yeah, for sure. So I um, we actually thought I had mono because I had lymph nodes for a couple of weeks got really tired all the time. I actually did a triathlon up in Ottawa and just wasn't feeling good in training. I was a lot more tired than I thought I should be. So after a few weeks of lymphomes not going away, went to the, just my family doc, because again, we thought I had mono, so wanted to get tested for that. And she recommended that we get a chest x-ray as well. So I got the rec and got a chest x-ray that afternoon. And the next morning, my family doc called us and told me I should go to the IWK because I like that Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that was shocking for sure. But within a week, I think I had, I had all my tests done at the IWK and had a treatment plan. So things moved very quickly from that point. Just to clarify, the IWK is a hospital near you? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's my bad. I'm used to talking to people in Nova Scotia. IWK is that's okay. Uh, the Children's Hospital in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is okay. where yeah, where I grew up and where I'm at right now. Right, right. So you just get this phone call essentially telling you you have cancer. You're in grade 10. You're in the middle of training for a triathlon. Like, how did that news hit you? Um, it was very surreal, I guess. Like, there was that initial wow. And then the next week, two weeks kind of the first couple of weeks, just surreal. Like it didn't really sink in until I was well in, under, uh, underway with my treatment. I remember some very vivid moments, like talking on the phone and then talking uh, to my mom at the time or calling my friend on the way to the hospital, just telling him that I wouldn't be at swimming and why. <laughs> and then from there, I guess it turned very analytical and okay, this is what's happening. This is, what I'm going to do about it. And this is the hand of the dealt. So what are we going to do? I think it hit my family a lot harder than it hit me. Like, uh, 
I never had a really big emotional moment, which my parents definitely did. So, so how did your parents react and did you see that emotional moment? What was their emotions around that? Uh, yeah, they, they definitely had a lot of emotions. Um, of course. They, they were scared mostly, I think. Yeah, now I'd say scared and sad. And that quickly turned into, okay, what are we going to do? And they were extremely supportive. And my family had, like my, uh, I've got two brothers and a sister. They had very similar responses. So it, I think that was uh, probably the hardest part in the beginning is trying to let my family know that I'd be okay. Absolutely. No, for sure. And I think that's like a common thing. Um, I know I felt that as well. Like, I mean, I was so young, but I, I did feel this like sense of sort of guilt almost for mm-hmm. making everyone around me sad. And also this responsibility to ensure that every, everyone that I was okay, because I wanted them to feel okay. Does yeah, that like you, resonate you felt with you? Bad. You felt bad for putting them through something. <laughs> Totally. And it's, it's really wild, right? Because of course you're not choosing to go through this. Mm-hmm. So did you, uh, did you have a similar thing with your parents? Uh, do you have siblings? Yeah. So I'm the oldest. Um, I have a younger sister and a younger brother. And I think for me, like, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to continue to be that older sister, right? <laughs> that bossy older sister. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That had it all together. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's strange when your role changes. Um, and then quickly my role in my family kind of became the one that had to be protected, the fragile one. And that's something I'm still sort of grappling with, honestly. Yeah, that was a big change going from it's just me, sibling, son, to being that, yeah, now I'm the one that needs to be protected and the one that people are worrying about and at the forefront of my family's mind, which yes. I didn't like. I don't know how you felt mm. about that. That's another thing, right? It's like getting all the attention, mm. um, which I think also really changes the dynamic in a family uh, and has implications on everyone, right? When you're sort of the sole focus yeah, in this and weird all, way. All the attention for something that you definitely don't want attention for. <laughs> Totally, totally. So how did your dynamic with your siblings, like what was your relationship like with them then? I don't think it changed anything long-term. Like I'm exactly as I am with my siblings as I was before. But short-term, it was definitely, they felt like they needed to, I guess, protect me or help me in any way they could. Like I wouldn't have my siblings just jumping up to get me a glass of tea or something before. (laughs) Or now, or now, but <laughs> they would, they would do that randomly, even though I was fully capable of doing it. I'm like, right. I can do, I can do my own stuff, but people are still trying to do stuff for me. Cause I guess they feel like they want to help in some way. And I'm like, okay, well, with the basic things, I don't want that help. <laughs> <It's not> fine. <laughs> so there's definitely a bit of that, but I think that's that really subsided funny. pretty quickly as I told them how I felt. And same goes for, uh, socially, I think. Mm, okay. Yeah. We'll definitely get into that. I, I definitely, yeah, it's funny, right? When they're like, okay, well you have cancer. So what am I supposed? And I think that this is just like a main theme. Um, people want to have something that they can do. They want to feel useful. You know, people don't want to feel helpless. And if they care about mm-hmm. you and love you, they want to do something to like alleviate your pain when sometimes like there's not really, I mean, getting you a glass of tea is kind of nice, but it's not really <laughs> what you need. Right. Yeah. Cause I think, it's all with good intention, but it can make you feel unable or uh, mm. like you're not capable of taking care of yourself, which isn't how I felt. And I know a lot of people do get to that point, And that's a very different situation when you actually need help with the basic things. But when you don't need help with the basic things, it can feel kind of I don't know, like unwarranted sympathy or pity. Yes. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between like sympathy, empathy, and pity lately and how, yeah, pity just does not feel good at all, right? And you, neither does sympathy a lot of the time. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, because I think those two words are very uh, closely linked, very different from empathy for sure. Like you can be empathetic to the situation that I went through, but 
my family who is completely foreign to it can't be and that's totally fine and like you just said pity is horrible (laughs) it's not something that you want no and i know i've had periods in my life where i i don't know if i thought that's what i wanted but like because like you said i mean it's really hard when you go through this at least for me because no one i knew was going through it right so i wanted that connection like that understanding from someone else going through it. And since I didn't have that, maybe pity was almost like the second best thing. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But every time I would receive pity, it felt it felt so awful, you know? And it continues to. And it's something that I really struggle with because I always want to continue to share my story and have these types of conversations. But I never want people to walk away with it just being like, oh, I feel really bad for those people, you know, because that's clearly not what we're trying to get across. Yeah. And I think what that can result in is you underplaying the situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had a lot of people, (laughs) my parents like to quote me saying that I barely had cancer, which is something that I said one day. (laughs) And they'll never let that quote go. But I 100% know what you mean when you say that there's a very big difference. And I've caught myself doing the same thing to other people. Like I was talking to someone recently who actually a while ago who had lost their parents at a young age. And I was saying, I felt I'm so sorry for you. And they're like, mm. I really don't want that. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, I shouldn't be doing that. Cause I didn't want that either. Completely mm. different situation, but it's not something that like when I was going through hard times, I didn't want that pity. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. So I instead I, I try to catch myself in those moments where I'm like, okay, no, I, I want to understand what you're going through, but I don't feel sorry. I didn't do anything. And I know you don't want that. I know you don't want the pity. It's changed my outlook on how I deal with uh, hearing about other people's situations, I think. I love that. I mean, it's it's so much wisdom that you gain. And I think we'll talk a lot about later about different lessons that you can get from this experience. Like, it just seems to me like you've been through a full life and you're, you're 20 now, right? Yeah. 20. Yeah. (laughs) So you have a lot of wisdom to share. I mean, going back to the friends thing. Uh, so you're diagnosed with cancer. You're like, have to call your friend and be like, Hey, I can't make swim practice. I have cancer. I mean, what was that like? How did they react? How did that impact your social dynamics? Very shocked uh, responses. And then, a lot of the time switched over to the pity and like wanting to help. Mm. And I feel so sorry for you. And that like the initial responses from my close friends were very similar to my family, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. upset, sad, worried for me, which is to be expected. And then I found the responses from my, like, like the in-between friends, the ones I'm not really close with, but uh, like my school friends and friends from like training and stuff. Those were interesting because people, switched over to the oh my god it feels so bad for you i need to do like you're going through something horrible and they have this there's a stigma around the word cancer people think he has cancer he's bedridden he can't walk he can't do anything he's just sitting around sedentary all day that's the vibes i got like uh over texting and social media but then when i actually saw people and hung out with them and they realized oh he is the exact same it's fine there's a very big switch and i saw that in a lot of people because I, I really tried to play everything off because I was fine. Like I was doing really good with my treatment, which a lot of people aren't. And I, I know that's a different uh, side of things, but people don't typically ask. Like they just hear cancer and they're like, okay, they're in a really bad spot. So it didn't change much with my close friends because they saw me and they saw that I was still myself. But for the people that didn't know me, it became a, that's what they knew about me. Like, like, oh, he has cancer. Yeah. Right. And that's like not really how we want to be known to people. No, 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 it's not. Did you, did you have it's not. similar experiences with uh, social circles or different? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, like what I realized at, so now I'm almost turning 32 and I, I sort of had inherited this identity as a patient and as a child, as a cancer, as a girl with cancer and that identity and how I thought that that, how people saw me is like still a part of me and still a part of me that I just like had to figure out how to work through because 
the truth is people don't see me that way anymore. You know, I mean, people have no idea what I went through, obviously, when I walk around today. Right. But I still have this weird thing in my head where I'm like so afraid that people see me that way or something or feel really different than other people because I went through Mm. that. And it's like you said, you kind of try and overprove that you're normal. But like at the same time, I, I also want to honor my experience, you know? For sure. And I had some moments of realization when I, uh, so I'm born and raised in Nova Scotia and I'm going to university in Waterloo, Ontario. And I had some moments first year. I still have these moments where I realized all of my friends over here don't know this about me. Or all, right. so many people over here don't know this about me because I was just so used to everyone I know knew that about me. And that was a defining feature that people knew about me, which I didn't want it to be defining. And I did the best I could that it wasn't. But for those that didn't know much about me, that was often the only thing they know. Right. But then, so I had moments where I'd mentioned something about treatment and people would be like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so I had, I don't know, those moments I think were really good for me and they still are because I'm like, yeah, that's, does not define me in the slightest. Right. But then at the same time, like it has in a positive way, right? Like I think for both of us, it's added to our life in the sense that we've learned things and it's changed. I mean, the fact that me and you are sitting here having this conversation, like Mm. would not have happened otherwise. Right. So there's clearly something that we've gained from the experience, but it's not necessarily something that we want to be pitied for. Yeah. And it's certainly, you're right. It has certainly shaped me in many ways, but it's not a uh, defining feature of who I am. I'm not somebody with cancer. Right. Right. And I think that that's a real difference. It's like when we're faced with a challenge like cancer, it's not something that we asked for. It's not part of our personality. And so to be defined by something external that's like thrust upon you is, is just awful, especially, I mean, I think when I think about you being in high school at that age, it's like high school, university, this is when we're like, we want independence, we want to figure out who we are. And then also like you were talking about taking away your autonomy a little bit, like, yeah, people giving you tea is nice, but at the same time, it's like, I'm a capable young man growing up trying to prove that I'm able to do things for myself. The last thing you want is to be treated in like this delicate way. Um, just to expand on, you said independence and especially going from 16, 17, 18, that's a period of life where you gain a lot of freedom. I mean, I got my driver's license. I'm able to go out without having to rely on other people. So it was hard for me to feel coddled a little bit, which yeah. I don't judge my parents for in the slightest. I understand. Well, okay. I don't understand that completely. I've never had kids, <laughs> but I, I, I know, I know why. They did, and I know why they cared so much, and why they wanted to protect me so much, especially my mom. <laughs> and I appreciate that, but it was definitely hard when I'm trying to find my independence, going through my upper teenage years, and having people want to coddle or pity me or help me, like you said, take away my autonomy. One hundred percent, and that was and still remains such a hard thing for me, like being so protected with this idea that I was fragile because we are, right? Like we are in that stage. I mean, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to be careful. You know, we can't just like, you probably shouldn't be doing what your friends are doing when you're going through treatment, right? Um, Maybe you should lay off the triathlons for a few days, but, (laughs) but um at the same time, it's it's very strange mentally when you're like so desperately, I so desperately wanted freedom and to like do everything that my friends were doing. And, you know, I remember just like even in the hospital, they're like, okay, you know, like all these things that I had to be careful of and all these things that I had to be afraid of and all these things that I had to make sure of. And you know, if you have a fever, then you have to be rushed to the hospital. And if you can't be exposed to the sunlight and be careful of microwaves and be careful of this and be careful of that. And my parents too, like, you know, God love them, but they were very worried. <laughs> and it just started to bring this thing in my head of like, oh, I guess I'm very, very delicate. And I guess maybe I am different than other people. And like, when that's inflicted upon you when you're so young, like for me, I think it almost became part of my how I saw myself, which I didn't like. Hmm. See, I never had that uh, 
that point where I internalized it. I was always like, mm-hmm. no, no, I'm not. Right. But I definitely see how it that could happen. How old were you when you went through your treatment? I was I diagnosed when I was seven. And then I was on treatment until I was 10. So I think that that's, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, okay, your ego kind of develops when you're seven. Like you're understanding that you're a separate human apart from like your parents and your family. Yeah, It's, I don't know. I love like looking back and trying to figure out, oh, okay, that's kind of when I was developing my sense of self. So that's probably why it was so, I, I internalized it so much, right? Whereas yeah, when you're a teenager, you've kind of already developed that sense of self a little bit. Yeah, I think your mind is much more malleable at that age than I was because I was already set in my opinions and views Mm, for a lot of things. Right, right. And it sounds to me like you almost went the opposite way where you were like, no, no, no. Like I barely, like that quote, I barely have cancer. It's like you're not, you weren't even really able to acknowledge the fact that you were going through something difficult because you so badly wanted to prove that you weren't. Mm. And I think people... I think there is a sense of truth to my mentality, though, because a lot of people were thinking I was going through something much worse than I thought I was. Because people, I mean, my treatment regimen and my protocols, as, at least the first time around, were much better than a lot of other cancer treatments. And people lump cancer into one big conglomerate, right? It's like saying you have a virus and it could be anything. People dance around the word. I always found that really funny to observe in conversation. Almost no one will say cancer. Even doctors will be the malignancy or mass or disease. Like they avoid the word cancer. I always found that quite amusing, but it also bothered me a lot. It bothered you. Oh, yeah, just the stigma. The stigma around it's cancer. It's horrible. He's bedridden. He can't do anything. He's very sick, all this stuff versus, okay, what, what is he going through? What is he actually uh, experiencing? Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is like a label or an assumption versus an -hmm. understanding, right? And it's like, it takes time to actually understand what someone's going through and it takes being able to distinguish and understand like, oh, okay, I don't just hear a word and then just lump everyone together. I actually, like you were saying about the person who had lost their parents, like at first you put an assumption on it because we all put assumptions on everything all day. That's how we survive in this world, right? We make judgments. But then you took a step back and you were like, oh, I'm assuming something. Let me actually get to know your experience and understand it. And I think that's sometimes something that's lacking, right? It's like, oh, we're just going to assume what you're going through rather than actually taking the time to get understand what you're going through. Exactly. And I was never upset with individual people for it because I realized like a couple weeks in or a month into my treatment, I realized, okay, two months ago, if I heard someone had cancer, I would have had the exact same response. Right. I didn't know about all of this variation and I wouldn't have been like, okay, what's what's this person's individual protocol and how are they dealing with it? I would have been like, oh my gosh, they have cancer. Right. So I, I can't judge the individual for that. It's more of a societal thing. It's that stigma around, like you said, lumping it all together. Yeah. And it's about cultivating empathy versus pity, right? It's like empathy, I think, is trying to really understand what someone's going through and trying to just really listen actively um, without assumptions. But that takes time. And I think that that's what this, hopefully these conversations can start to elicit in people, you know, just have people share their stories because ultimately like we're all different, you know, we're all, we all have different personalities. We've all had different experiences with this thing. And so kind of honoring that individuality and experience, allowing hopefully you to share your story in the way that you would like to share your story. I think even in itself is very empowering, right? Because you get to now set the stage. Um, it's not the doctor, it's not anyone else kind of telling you, it's like, you get to say how you experienced it. Yeah. And do that in a way that I'm not receiving pity in response. I'm just receiving people wanting to know what I went through and hear what my experience, but not pity me for it. Totally. Yeah. So you mentioned the doctors. I mean, did you, so you even kind of felt a little bit of pity from them. That's interesting. I know. I don't think pity from doctors is, uh, it was more just the whole uh, you know, like dancing around the word cancer or 
not being straight about things. And it varied from doctor to doctor. Some doctors I loved and some doctors I really didn't agree with. Like there, there when I had my stem cell transplant, there was one doctor who gave me some pretty harsh statistics and I questioned him on it. Like I asked about if they were for just a general stem cell transplant for this or if they were specific to the type of relapse of Hodgkin's lymphoma with certain mass and all that or if they were specific to like gender, age, all of those components. And mm-hmm. he had no answers and kind of, he didn't like me asking about it. And then he also couldn't cite where he was getting it from. Cause I just mm-hmm. wanted to look into the research. Like I wanted to see where the data was coming from and he couldn't provide it. And I clashed a lot specifically with that guy, but with some other people as well, where I wanted more information that they couldn't really back up. And when I found statistics like that, doing my own research, they were like 30 years old. And for very broad things. So I, I clashed with some doctors for reasons like that, but I never, I didn't feel much pity from them. It was more just me observing how they dealt with things. Right. I mean, I'm definitely a big advocate for like reform in our healthcare system and just more supports and just, I think our, our healthcare system is really pa- like it puts patients in a very passive role, patient and passive. They're the same. They come from the same root. So it's like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. When I found that out, it blew my mind. Patient. I'm going to have to look up the etymology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look it up. It's Latin. It's fascinating. Oh my God. You're the first person who actually shares my excitement for that. (laughs) Um, I have to, I'll find it. I'll find it. I'll tell you. Uh, I'll look that up while you're speaking. Yeah, yeah, please do. Um, No. So when I found that out, I was like, oh my God, that explains so much of how passive I felt in my care and, and how, again, like I wanted to feel empowered. I wanted to understand. Right. And, and I think, I think our healthcare is starting to change hopefully, but I think it's really amazing that you were able to say, Oh, okay. I'm interested in that statistic. Like I want to hear more. And maybe some doctors are a little more comfortable with that than others. But again, this is a helpful opportunity, even for medical professionals to be like, Hey, Oh, patients kind of want to be more involved. They want to understand. They want to have a say in how they're being treated, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, I can definitely relate to that. I want it, not even, even if it wasn't a say, just, uh, I want you to explain what, what I mean, right. what my treatments are, why they work. And I, there were some doctors that I loved for their ability to talk to me. Like, um, Dr. Jason Berman, a little shout out. He, <laughs> he, he, he headed a research lab for zebrafish in Nova Scotia. Now he's, things off doing more research but he was amazing for that like i would sit and talk to him for hour and a half about specific types of treatment and how they work and i really appreciate it when doctors would give me that like i know a lot of people are very passive in their situation and they don't want to know anything about it they just want to go through it and do their own thing and that's totally fine but when a patient wants to know all the information doctors being able to provide that and actually have conversations about it was is really good and i think all doctors should be like that in my opinion but i was i was lucky to have have some that were very uh i was very able to talk to about that sort of stuff i think that one of the big issues with our healthcare system is just that of course if any doctors listening to this they might think to themselves that's amazing that Dr. Berman sat with you for an hour and a half, but perhaps there's not enough just time in doctor schedules, right? To, to be able to have those conversations. So first of all, it's incredible when they do and when they take the time. Um, but also potentially if there was just different supports within our system that could, so that we could have these types of conversations. I think that there should be mental health support and emotional support and caregiver support and, you know, all of it to recognize that these things can affect us in lots of different ways. And for some of us processing it differently, wanting to know more information, you know, it's helpful to have those types of things. Yeah, no, I think there's a lack of that in some places, but I, uh, like when I was at the adult hospital, I noticed a lack of offered support, but I was at the children's hospital. There was plenty, like I, I've been offered mental health support, countless times <laughs> or, or dietitian support or fitness support like all kinds of different ways that they can help any patients so i i found that was pretty well covered 
when I was in treatment. I don't know if you had a different experience. Well, that's really interesting because that's another thing that I've really struggled with. So I have an interesting health history, I guess. So I had that cancer from seven to 10, uh, was in remission. And then at 17, I was diagnosed with colitis, with ulcerative colitis. And because of the past cancer treatment, it was more complicated and it was pretty severe and ended up being hospitalized a lot and having a bunch of surgeries and all of that. But the difference between how you're treated for me in Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, the children's hospital versus the adult hospital, it was so starkly different. And when I was 17, I was diagnosed with colitis and I was treated in that very, you know, maybe sometimes coddling, but it's, it's, it's helpful when you're diagnosed with something scary, right? To feel like you're being supported and everything is there. And then all of a sudden you're, I'm 18 and I'm thrust into this adult hospital where it just felt like all of that was taken away and I had no idea what was going on. And that was also when I started going to university and my disease was pretty severe during university and it was really scary. And I just felt like I was completely alone. So that difference between the children's hospital and the adult hospital, I think is really interesting. Yeah. I, when I had my stem cell transplant, usually for kids, they send them to sick kids in Toronto. But if you're adult sized, they'll just send you next door to the adult hospital, which is the QE2 here in Halifax. And I noticed, like you said, such a stark difference between the treatment and experience you have at the kids' hospital and the treatment and experience you have at the adult hospital. And I know a lot of that's probably due to underfunding and all of the, or most of the support and donations and stuff, people donate to kids' hospitals when they think about, oh, where I'm going to donate to the hospital, where is it going to be? It's not in the forefront of the public's mind, but it's most of the population that's getting treated is at the adult hospitals. It was a, a big difference. And I never experienced much of the adult side because I had a week over there for the transplant. And then I was sent right back to the kids hospital for isolation. So it's interesting to hear your perspective where you had a completely different disease and completely different treatment that you saw both sides very in depth. So I guess I don't know much about the support that's offered at the adult hospitals, but I can definitely imagine it's not what you get at the kids hospital. And it's just very strange when you're like, wait, I'm not that different now that I'm 18 than I was 17, right? And yeah, it's, it's just sort of the way our system currently functions, but hopefully that, that will change a little bit with like these types of conversations. So I, you had mentioned a stem cell treatment, you mentioned a few things, and, and I know that you actually had a relapse of your cancer about, I believe, was it like about a year after you were treated the first time? Yeah, it was, it was almost a year to the day, which was a, uh... It might have been a year to the day, which is quite wow. odd. But. So, I mean, I'm just really curious to hear what that experience was like. And especially based on our conversation, like you have been talking about how it was really important for you that people don't treat you differently. You're like, I barely have cancer. This is no big deal, guys. Everyone calm down. Stop giving me tea. And then a year later, you're diagnosed again. So what was that experience like? It was definitely different than the first time because I didn't have that bit of surrealism that I had the first go around because I was already accustomed to the fact that I had had cancer. I was actually I was at the top of my driveway, uh, putting my mountain bike in the back of the truck. So I was supposed to go for a ride and my parents were walking by, uh, cause they were just leaving to walk the dog. And that's when I got a call from my physician at the IWK and said that I was going to have to come in cause he thinks that I had a relapse. So I talked to my parents right there. It was more of a, I was angry a little bit, I think, just not anyone in particular, just in general. And so I took my bike. Uh, I still went and did my ride. It was try to compartmentalize. And it, yeah, it was more of an anger, I think, the second time around for the first hour or so. And then it quickly became, a, okay, this is the hand I've been dealt. What are we going to do? And we'll get through this and became very researched and, uh, analytical again but that would be the i think defining difference is the surrealism versus the this feels unfair this feels unfair i mean i th yeah i think the anger piece is, is so real for so many of us and 
it's hard because there's no one to direct it to. So it can feel like, I don't know, for me, I think I almost turned a lot of the anger against myself. And I don't think that, you know, I'm working through that even to this day to like make sure that I don't turn that anger towards myself anymore. But I think working through that anger and processing it because it's it's real, you know, there is this sense of like, okay, come on, like, give me a break here. Yeah, definitely. Give me the give me a break here kind of uh, attitude. (laughs) But I don't know, that didn't last too long for me because it quickly became a problem to solve. The biggest one being how am I going to I was just going into grade 12 year of my international baccalaureate program. So it was like, okay, I, I want to finish now. I don't want to have to wait half a year to write my exams next November instead of May. Cause that would put me back a year for university. And there would have been a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know, the anger. And, uh, I don't like to play the victim for too long. I get mad at myself for doing that. <laughs> Whenever I catch myself doing that, I try to snap out of it. So it quickly became more of a, this is just what I have to deal with. Mm. Was there ever any fear? Like through this whole process, did you ever feel afraid? The first time around, no. I felt quite confident. The second time around, perhaps a bit in the beginning. I think it it was mostly subconscious, especially like when I went to get tests uh, a year later. Like after I was in remission, everything was gone. I was pet negative and getting tests again a year later the next july i think there was again mostly i always said i wasn't afraid but i think there was subconsciously fear because it would be life-altering if it came back again like it was life-altering the first time but long term it would have had a massive impact if it came back again so there was a bit of fear the second time around but again i tried to suppress that as much as possible because it doesn't really help anything. Like, fear is, I don't know, quite a wasted emotion when it comes to something that you can't control. I know some people disagree with me on that point, but that was my mentality, at least. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious. I feel like, you know, you were such a big athlete, right? And you obviously have this, like, very analytical engineering mind. And it, it's interesting. Like, it really seems like you approached cancer with those same mentalities of like, obviously you have to be incredibly tough and resilient to be an athlete and to perform the way that you performed. So it almost, I don't know. I wonder if your sports background played a part in the way that you dealt with uh, what you were dealt, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure. I'd never quite thought about that, but since you mentioned sports, I, I just realized one thing I was afraid of was the effect that it would have on my, uh, my ability to do activities going forward. That was something I was definitely openly afraid of, especially radiation on my lungs or around my lungs. So I wasn't like, again, I I was suppressing any fear about uh, relapsing a third time, but I was definitely open, openly afraid of how it would affect my athletic ability. Athletic ability and school ability, like your ability to graduate with other people. And Um, no, no, I I wasn't afraid of that. I, because I, I don't know, I developed a plan quite quickly for that. So I, was in isolation for three months, one month in hospital and two months at home. And that spanned, I think, November, December, January. So pretty important part of the grade 12 year. But I set up a uh, an online schooling system where I had friends in each class. I would have a Chromebook and they would video call me every single class. So I would attend my classes just through a video call from the hospital and I did all my work and just sent it in because initially I was told I likely wasn't going to like I was going to have to take three months off of school and wouldn't finish on time. But I really wasn't accepting that. So I spoke with uh, my teachers and my vice principal, who was super supportive of everything. And they're like, yeah, we can definitely make that work. So. I piloted a system like that. And I'd want it. It's funny. I had been talking to the IWK afterwards about sharing my experience with that uh, video school system. And then we are going to continue talking like throughout the next year. And then the pandemic hit and everyone was online. Right, right. You were, you were, you designed a system pre-pandemic that still, still functions to this day. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was more dependent on people being there in person, but 
That's true. It, it was. It, I found it quite funny to hear everyone complaining about doing online school when everyone was <laughs> in online school. <laughs> You're like and everyone complaining about isolation. That was a. Uh, that was that was pretty amusing. Yeah, I mean, you've wow. I know it's it's really interesting you going through this experience with cancer and then being hit with this pandemic. Like you've had mm. quite a quite an interesting life so far. Yeah, but to get back to your your question, no, I I wasn't really afraid of school side of things. But certainly the sports side of things. And then you quickly sort of were like, okay, relapse. Let's, what do we have to do? Let's design the school system. Let's, let's, let's move forward. And, and do you mm, find more, that that yeah, helped? moving forward. Um, Did you find that, like, do you think that you psychologically it was beneficial? I mean, I guess I sort of know the answer. Like, I think that, cause I was the same way. Like I missed a month of grade 12. And then I quickly was like, okay, like, how do I catch up? How do I make sure that I graduate with everyone else? How do I go to university like everyone else? And when I look back, and then university for me was very difficult because I was very ill, but I still was very, it was really important for me to keep up. And part of that I think was good. Like, I'm happy that I have that spirit and that I wanted so badly to keep up. And I think it kept my mind away from what I was dealing with. But another part of me is like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it was, I think ultimately it was a good thing because it did help me sort of have something else that I could focus on. I think on the other hand, I was a little too hard on myself, but maybe, I don't know if you feel the same way. I think moving forward is always really important. And I imagine you found the same thing. Like you said, you missed a month of school, but you weren't going to let that push you back a year. Right. And then when you were in university, you weren't just going to stop university because you knew you were able to do it. So having goals in life is so important to me. Mm. And I think it should be important to most people because if you take on that victim mentality, that's, it's very defeating. Mm. If you don't have something you're working towards, even people who aren't going through hard things in life, if you, people get out of uh, high school or get out of university and then they don't have something they're working towards and they feel a, a lack of purpose or a lack of, do you know what I mean? I completely know what you mean. And I think that that's incredibly wise. And it sounds to me like that ability to have goals and to know where you're going and to be sort of direct in that path really helps you navigate this like very difficult time, potentially. That would be maybe sort of the fear could could have, could in other people be really consuming without a goal. Or the yeah. victim mentality could overtake people potentially in a similar situation. Yeah, and that's some my parents have instilled for me from for a very long time is not to keep that victim mentality because it, like we were just saying, it's defeating. It really is, and it, it no benefit comes from it. I guess it's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to help you move forward. It's not going to help you overcome what you're going through. It is only going to bring harm. Playing the victim. No, I think that that's really true. I think you're showing, you're showcasing that letting go of the victim mentality and having these goals allowed you to be where you're at today. Right. And mm. be, be as successful as you are right now. Yeah. And then to bring it one step further, I mean, there's victim mentality and self-defeating and then there's, okay, no, I'm going to move forward. And then another level that I think a lot of people don't get to, but I think if you can is really good is okay. What good can I bring from this situation and how can I flip this to my advantage? Which a lot of people will get to the, okay, I'm moving forward, but not get to the, okay, now how am I going to make something good out of this? And that's something that I really strive to do as well, which I would like anyone listening to this who's going through treatment and who has reached the point where they feel like they're moving forward and they feel like they're there. What's something that you can flip to bring something good out of it? Like for me, that was fundraising and that has become a really big part of my life. I think that for me, like I actually have a very clear memory of being in the hospital. I don't even, I mean, I've been hospitalized so many times over my life that I don't even know when or where or what, but I just remember like getting to a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I just, I can't continue to have my life be set back. I can't continue to feel this much physical pain and this much like 
fear of of all these things happening to me and just to feel so different from other people. And like, I can't keep fighting, you know, I've been fighting my whole life through all these health challenges. And, and I was talking to my dad and I just felt so defeated in that moment. And I remember him saying to me, like, you're going to help so many people, you know, by going through this. And you can't give up because you wouldn't want someone in your situation to give up. Right. And by, by being able to look outside of myself, that really helped me. And I think that that was always in the back of my head the entire time. And I, I think if I, if I didn't have that as my goal, I don't think I would have gone through it. I really don't. So I completely relate to that feeling. And I think it's very empowering, right? It gives mm-hmm. us our power back when we say, okay, I'm going through this, you know, if we want to say the universe or God or someone decided somewhere that you're going to go through this and you don't understand why, but the good that can come out of it is you can share whatever gifts and lessons you've learned. I've had a very different life than other people. And I used to feel like that separated me from people. And honestly, sometimes I still do, but it also gives me a perspective on life that other people might not have. And that can be beneficial for them, you know? Yeah. And now you were at that extreme low, but now you're at a point where you're making so much good from that situation. And you're talking about it with me and you're, you've done this podcast with a bunch of other people and sharing <laughs> all of these things in the world and helping other people going through it. So that is, like you said, it gives you your power back and it's empowering to others so they can go and do the same. You want to have something good come from it, which you have done. And I like to think that I've done. Thanks, Cole. Well, let's hear a little bit more about what you're, what you're doing and what you're passionate about in terms of giving um, back and fundraising. So my first year, I'll just start at the beginning. My first, uh, my first year of treatment, my swim coach actually told me about Light the Night, which is an annual walk that uh, the Film and Leukemia Society of Canada do every year. And they have them all over the country, but there's one in Halifax. So it's just a walk with uh, lanterns at night. And it's a big event to fundraise for blood cancer research in Canada. So I just signed up a team online, uh, wrote a letter about my experience and sent it out to all my friends and family. And I was so astonished by the support that I got. I raised a couple thousand dollars in that night. And then I raised $13,000 over the two weeks before the event. And that was inspiring to me. I realized, wow, I actually have a capacity to do some good. So the next year I took on the, the honored hero role, which is just a representative role for the walk. And I created a online auction. Me and my friends were skiing. We created an online auction called Bid to Be Blood Cancer. So I ran that auction for the year and raised a lot more money than I expected. I think it was 35000 something around there. So I raised a lot. Again, was astonished by the support that I got. I've done the auction uh, another year after that. And then this year, couldn't do the auction because of COVID. So I just led the team again. And now, I've, cumulatively, we've raised $95,000 to date which is incredible to me and something that I never would have thought I was capable of doing unless someone was like, Hey, you should try this. And I was like, yeah, I I might as well, I might as well do something to give back because it's past fundraising that allowed for the development treatments that have made it so here today. (laughs) So like you said, it's very empowering to give something back to the community. And then on top of that, I try to do, as much public speaking and uh, talks like this to help others that might be going through similar situations. I recently um, started doing the First Connections program, which is a program the LLSC offers for patients to just call and talk to someone who's gone through something similar. And that has been it's completely different than all my other fundraising, which is on a broad spectrum. It's down to the individual case by case, but that has been extremely rewarding as well. So stuff like that, I never would have been able to do. I never would have been aware of my capacity to do if it weren't for my experiences. So I don't look back at 
myself and pity my uh my grade 11 and 12 self at all and i see instead that okay there's a lot of good that's going to come from this and there's a lot of good that can continue coming from this and i hope that other people going through a similar situation can try to find that good as well i think that that's a very empowering and beautiful message to um to leave everyone with today and I know that even in this conversation, just your story and your spirit has like really, really inspired me. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. It was such an honor for me to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Montana. It's been great talking to you as well and hearing your story. And please continue uh, doing the work that you're doing because I look forward to listening to all of the other conversations you have. Thanks, Cole. Yeah, I hope that our conversations continue. If listeners have any questions about caregiving for someone with a blood cancer or need support navigating your experience, I encourage you to connect with the community services manager in your region. Visit bloodcancers.ca to connect with us. Thank you to TELUS Friendly Future Foundation for generously sponsoring today's episode. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening to the Blood Cancer Experience podcast series by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. You can find us wherever you access your favorite podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have a great idea for the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your comments or suggestions at canadainfo at lls.org. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada is dedicated to funding cutting-edge research and supporting people affected by blood cancers. To learn more and access resources, including fact sheets, booklets, and webcasts, visit bloodcancers.ca.